Are you gay? Geeky? Just enjoy hearing your good Judy's dish about the latest in pop culture? Well, then you're in luck. The boys of Flame On are here for you. In every episode, we discuss the topics that entrance us. Whether it's comics, TV, movies, drag queens, or video games, we've got you covered. So, if you're ready for your gay and geeky slice of pop culture life, then sit back and get ready to Flame On! Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Look, I'm going to level with you. I have my own things to deal with. After all, we are about to crash a lovely landing. The Orphans, an original cinematic audio drama, is now available. And now, The Orphans Facility, an exciting new prequel series. Catch up with season one with new episodes of Facility coming bi-weekly. Flame On is presented by the Nerdy Show Network. Geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. All Nerdy Show programming is made possible by A Comic Shop, Orlando's number one comic shop and nerd destination. And with the generous support of listeners like you. To learn how you can support this and other fine geeky programming, visit nerdyshow.com. Welcome to Flame On. My name is Pat. I'm your talking bearskin rug, and we are back with another deep dive episode for you. I am sitting in the host chair today, being joined by Brian. Hello. Because today's topic is one that is very near and dear to Brian's heart, and I didn't know much about it, so I figured what better way to bring this conversation to life than me being the one to really ask a lot of questions, because oh great, I didn't know much about <laughs> I this. I didn't study. Oh, it's all right. I have my books, though. All right. So, we are talking today, if you did not read the title of this episode, about Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. This is a 13-book series written by Daniel Handler, under the pen name of Lemony Snicket, that has been brought very successfully to Netflix. And season two just recently dropped, and we have now seen both of the first two seasons, and we are here to talk about it. So, Brian, tell me about how this book series came into your life. Back all the way, at least in 1999, maybe later than that, when did you start reading these books? I don't actually remember. I was digging through my archive, my library, which I have, uh, trying to find these books, and they're buried, of course, a double stack. You have too many books for a bookcase. And I found them, and I was looking through one of the books called The Beatrice Letters, and I saw a copyright of 2006, which 
meant that that book, uh, I believe, came out towards the end of the time I was reading it because I was reading the series while they were being released. And I think I was in, may have been in grad school, may have been just out of college. So I'm going to say mid-2000s, and that, that sort of lines up with the, the different trademarks. But I don't remember starting, like, right away. And it was literally, like, just by fate. Um, I think I had read Harry Potter. Well, I, I should say I started with the Golden Compass series, uh, His Dark Materials, by Philip Pullman, which is another one of my favorite uh, YA books. And perusing the bookstore back then, Borders, Barnes and Noble, the usual. I encountered these books very early in that uh, discovery, like Harry Potter and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, let me snick at series of unfortunate events. It is YA. It is sort of young adult. But what I always loved about this series uh, and what I think I kept coming back for was it's very much the C.S. Lewis kind of like trying to sort of teach as it's telling you a story. And so a lot of times in the books and in the adaptation, you'll have, uh, you know, they'll say a word, adversity, and then they'll say, by which we mean struggle, which is very fine. And, you know, it's kind of a classic. They didn't invent this technique for these books. But what they do that's really fun as the books progress, and I think we've seen this a little bit in the series so far somewhat, is they almost find sort of a bit of a sarcastic bite sometimes and almost not, not perverse, but they subvert some of the meanings a little bit. Uh, to work into the story that they're telling and to tell kind of a moral parable uh, or, or or in some cases a satirical uh, turn. I think the the hospital episode is where you really start – or no, the Vile Village I think is one of the ones that you really start to say. Anyway, all this being said, uh, I was definitely sort of young adult, not YA unfortunately. Because <laughs> YA, young adult literature is meant for like kids. It's not really young adult, right? It's They call yeah. it YA but it's – I think that that really kind of stretches into, you know, into the teen years and whatnot, which, I mean, I, I get that when you were reading these, that wasn't exactly the target demographic they were going for. But, I mean, it's a series that in watching it come to life, I haven't read the books myself, although now I'm kind of uh, eager to see what these last four books have in store, uh, considering how crazy all of the events have been going through these these first uh, books that have been done in seasons one and two. But I think it's something that kind of reaches a an audience that isn't just your, you know, 10, 12, 14, 16-year-old reader, that it definitely can give a bit of a, uh, a life lesson for, for people a bit older. So, you know, again, like this is... Uh... An interesting genre, which there's been a lot of amazing stuff written. And obviously in the last, what, seven or eight years, I think, with the Hunger Games after Harry Potter, like the movieization, the 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 realization of these books as movies has really taken off, become its own genre in, in movies. And the interesting thing with this particular series is it, they tried to do this as a movie. And I think it was back, like, you know, let's say 10 years ago with Jim Carrey, very famously. And that movie was actually really good. I liked it. it. It, to me, captured the spirit of the first three books with some departures and some embellishments, which I was fine with. The music is one of my favorite soundtracks. The acting was fabulous. The tone was really close to what I remembered loving about the book series. Uh, but unfortunately, it didn't do very well in the box office. So they didn't make any more of the books, of which, like you said, there are 13 and we only got three. 
What I learned about, and I was actually just reminding myself of, is uh, some of the production people from the movie actually left the project early on because of creative differences, including Daniel Handler and Barry Sonnenfeld, who, if you're familiar with, like, Pushing Daisies and, um, oh gosh, Men in Black, I think. Like, he, he has a very Adams family. I, I may be totally wrong on some of these, but he has a very unique, austere sort of just so sensibility and uh not daniel handler um brian fuller borrows a lot from this sort of uh same palette in his shows so i've always been attracted to this and what this netflix series is is handler daniel handler and sonnenfeld some other people from that movie production uh but the ones who left getting a chance to really tell their version of the uh of the of the unfortunate events series and since handler is the writer I also feel like he's getting a chance to sort of um, have a second draft of this, sort of. Like, I'm sure he did multiple drafts. But getting a chance to sort of tell the story in a way that is adapted for television or Netflix, television, and also get some of the more um, mysterious elements and some of the more, um, you know, little MacGuffins or red herrings even uh, out there earlier so you keep being interested in the mystery that and it propels you through the series because one yeah. of the things the book like the books it takes a while before you get answers and there are many people who you know i don't want to spoil anything but don't necessarily find the series to have all the answers in it but yeah i mean i'm i'm especially with season two season one a little bit but season two it spoon fed out a lot of the mysteries in a way that i felt was very satisfying yeah i mean with not knowing much of the story or any of the story going into either season season two definitely keeps you interested and is able to kind of pique your interest in the whole storyline and with some great acting as well um and just to to touch back it's actually been almost 14 years since the movie 2004 wow Wow. uh so i must have actually started reading this then in the late or the late 90s early 2000s because the movie was out well after i started so okay that's yeah, interesting. the first well the first two books came out in 99 the last one came out in 2006 wow i didn't realize i was that close to i remember waiting because you know like people who read harry potter back in the day when it was coming out you would go to walmart at midnight or your, your favorite bookstore hopefully and go to the party and it was this whole big thing because you just wanted to know and then you would i remember famously sitting in a bathtub i think it fi- it was full of water at one point and then it drained as i was finishing like the fifth harry potter book or something same thing with these Lemony Snicket books, but to a lesser extent. Every time a new one came out, it was sort of an event, and I would rush out to the bookstores because back then Amazon wasn't as big a thing, and you know get the latest uh, uh, book. So um, you know, and again, being a slightly older person, it was kind of weird going to the YA section. But again, it was you know, it's 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 a great series for kids, and it's a great series for adults. I think to enjoy with the kids, whether you're reading the books, which again, if you want to get your kids interested in literature. Another thing this series does is tons and tons of glorious references. I'm not going to go through all of them. There's a lot. But um, one, uh, Vice Principal Nero, obviously from Roman uh, mythology, or not mythology, Roman history, and playing a fiddle, of course, you know. The Caligari, uh, which I can't remember what that reference is. It was like some kind of a horror, or maybe it was a Hammer film. I don't know. I got to dig up what reference that was. Gosh, I can't remember any of the other. Heimlich Hospital, that's kind of a more obvious one, right? The Heimlich Maneuver. Gosh, there's so many. All the characters, pretty much. Even the Baudelaire's themselves. Baudelaire, um, it's been a while. I believe he was a French romantic writer. I, I, I used to know a lot more of this stuff, but when I was reading the books, 
Um, and so like the kids' names have significance. Like everybody in the story has like either a reference behind them that may or may not play into their character idea or something else. Like it's just it's 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 a rich, rich tapestry. And again, the books are great, but the series that they've done, it's it's captured that tone. So so let's dig okay. into that. Yep, sorry. Let's I'm, dig I, into I, that. I obviously <laughs> like this stuff and can talk all day. I know, and that's why we're doing this. <laughs> so Netflix decided to produce this neil patrick harris is a major driving force behind the show he is an executive producer on the show he sings the theme song to the show and he is one of the main characters as count olaf so when netflix announced that this was coming to their airwaves what was your reaction how did you feel because i want to say that around the time this was announced we may have been in new york because I feel like I remember being on the train platform and you talking about it and kind of being excited for for all this. So I, fig- I feel like it was around a New York Comic Con-ish time. A mm, couple years ago then. Yeah. So how did you, what was your reaction? How did you feel about it? What was, what was going through your head when you heard that there was going to be a new series of unfortunate events? I think when I first heard it, it was announced and, I, and Neil Patrick Harris was attached to it. Not that I don't love Neil Patrick Harris. I do. But I think because of you, I started watching How I Met Your Mother which is, you know, if not for Duke, when I mean, Doogie Hauser was his first like foray, How I Met Your Mother, the character Barney Stinson is like the epitome of the, it's peak Neil Patrick Harris in a lot of ways, right? I mean, he's done a lot of other amazing projects. I don't want to diminish anything else, but like that show ran for so long and his character was so vivid. For nine years. Yeah. Thank you. And of course you know that. Uh, well, in one of the, the, the most recent episodes at the end of season two. He makes a Count Olaf makes a comment about uh, trying to start a star in his own television show for nine years or nine seasons. Totally didn't get that reference. Yeah, that's I I stopped for a second. I was like, wait a minute, nine years of How I Met Your Mother. Hmm, yeah. So I was a little worried because one of the problems I had with the movie, a very minor one, was that it was a Jim Carrey vehicle, and Olaf, when I was reading the books, was not someone I recognized, nor did he have maybe some of the more zany characteristics of the renditions. However, I thought Jim Carrey did a wonderful job in the end, um, in, in a lot of the scenes, conveying the menace that Olaf is supposed to convey. But what is interesting, because it was only the first three books, there's going to be slight spoilers throughout this, so I'll try not to do anything too crazy. But Olaf is a complex character. He's not just a mustache twirling villain. It's sort of like a layers thing. As you peel away the layers of his character and you find more of his backstory, you realize that it's not just because he's evil. There's like reasons for why he's done what he's done. And the show is again, kind of dolled that out in very small doses, but it gets you there certainly by the end, which is the last book very creatively named, right? you get the full picture of who Olaf is in totality. And it's a complex character. It's one of the most probably complex villains in, in literature, if not certainly in YA that I've read, you know, I mean, other villains, of course, whatever. And, you know, villains are, should be more interesting than just mustache twirling, you know, ridiculousness. But uh, Neil Patrick Harris, even though I was concerned when it was announced, when I found out the handler was involved, who again, like it's his stuff. Like I was very excited. And then when I started seeing uh, Will Sonnenfeld, when I started seeing more and more names attaching to this, and then the actors that they got. I mean, the kids are a huge part. I mean, they're, they're the central point. Sonny, Violet, and, and uh, Klaus 
all i mean that is where most of the action is these three orphans and getting those characters right i I was really concerned that they weren't going to be able to capture the the three that were in the movie which were again fantastic but they did uh in some ways now i mean this has supplanted my memory of the movie so yeah as more and more stuff came out about the movie and then we saw that first trailer oh i mean it, it i just was delighted um, you talked about Neil um, singing the opening. That opening song, in some form, is in the books. And so, what I also love so far about the seeing the seasons is so many of the little touches in the book that you really can't bring to life without bringing it to life. Like those songs, they're all there and they're captured in in really nice little moments. Even the opening, um, I was about to show you. I'm flipping through uh, one of the books. Uh, every book has uh, a dedication to Beatrice. And they're um, basically presented, I believe, right out of the book at the beginning of each episode. Um, oh, so yeah. That's, that, no, that's exactly the one that you're showing me. I remember that one uh, word for word. That was what was typed across the screen. And what I what I love, I do love the, the dedications. That's actually one of my favorite parts uh, for each. And it's at the beginning of each two part. Yes. Because it's obviously the beginning of the book. And I'm so glad they gave it two parts because I could see them cramming a whole book into an episode and it doesn't let it breathe. Absolutely. And I love that they gave it that 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 time. And again, doing these as movies, I don't think you would have ever gotten as many character beats and subtleties and just delightful little moments that you get by letting it breathe as television. Absolutely. And I do love the theme song and I love that the theme song for every book is basically a synopsis of the the plot and that it's kind of gives you a little bit of a, a taste of what's to come without really giving too much away. And, um, and to your point with letting these beats happen, it's kind of funny as you get to the later episodes and the later books, they start to kind of tie in together. Yep. And you know, they all, you know, they obviously all tie together, but in watching the, final two episodes of this season, actually the last one of this season, to start seeing the characters from all the other books in one place in that carnival and seeing the angry villagers with the pitchforks, seeing the teachers from the preparatory school. Uh, obviously, Mr. Poe, the banker, is throughout the entire thing. The nurses from the hospital. The nurses yeah. from the hospital. You, you get to see these different characters who are basically contained in their own story. Because the Baudelaire's, you know, get into an unfortunate event in whatever circumstance they're in in that book. And then they kind of disappear and go into a different thing. So to kind of get that visual callback and that visual tie at the end of the season, the second season, really kind of brings everything together. Because you've gone through, you know, everything up to, you know, the first, what is it, uh, nine books? I can't do math right now. Yes, because there's 13 yeah, total. Yeah, yeah, there's four more books left. So it's it's really kind of interesting to see that and have that visual tie and be able to see all of these these threads really tying together nicely. So when the first season dropped, I know we mentioned this on the, on a regular cast recording briefly. We never really kind of dug into it, which is why after seeing season two and now being nine books in and uh, having 18 episodes to be able to watch because if you want to binge watch them all 18 episodes are available on netflix i feel like we should have a sound effect sound effect <laughs> this isn't the joel McHale show with joe McHale. when season one aired what was your thoughts like when you finally got to sit down and 
the trailer obviously got you really excited for this. When you got to sit down and we watched through this first season, how did this grab you? I mean, it it proved that they got it right. So again, watching the movie, reading the books, like they all they have a very similar sensibility, even the movie versions of those thir- first three books. But as the show evolved past that, you got to the fourth book, which was the uh, the uh, the mill. I forgot the the other the adjective for the mill. Uh, oh, miserable mill. I just saw it on my shelf. You started to now finally break away from what had been done before, and where I realized and really got impressed is uh, as they started layering some of the music in, and that first season ends with this delightful song that I wish they put out on a soundtrack, and they have not yet. Uh, people listening, you should write Netflix and demand a soundtrack. The especially for like the opening song and then that song, but it's it just tied everything together in such a delightful way that still fit the narrative, but you know, kind of broke away because you had like Olaf singing and it makes sense, but whatever. It, it just put a nice bow along around the, the first four books, and that's not something I was used to because again, the movie did the first three, but overall, getting these different actors involved, uh, who have some notoriety, I mean, um, so Alfred Woodard, I think, was in the third one as. As uh, the the guardian. So for those of you who don't know the formula, Aunt Josephine. yeah, Aunt Josephine. Thank you. For those of you who don't know the um, the breakdown or how these sort of like episodic you know books work, Baudelaire's family die in a fire. They're the only survivors that we know of. Uh, they are passed from guardian to guardian. Um, They're entrusted to a bank, which yeah, I know makes no <laughs> sense, right? It, it really is kind of a. It starts off like wacky to begin with, where. You have these three children who are orphaned by a fire that are then left to a banker to manage their guardianship. I mean, he's he's a mulctuary manager. Um, no, it's uh, it's weird. It is an odd conceit, but the idea was, you know, their will. He's interpreting their will, and their will is like, okay, now you're going to go live with this person, and then you're going to live with this person, and you're going to live with this person. Only in that order because, unfortunately, again, series of unfortunate events, the guardians in question either meet with an unfortunate end or turn out to not be who they maybe represented they were or X. I mean, there's a lot of different things that happen. Um, what I like in the first season is you see after those first three books, like that pattern starts to break down a bit. And over the second season, you totally see that pattern degrade so much so that there's almost a moment in the second season where the orphans sort of start to take on characteristics of the people pursuing them. So the orphans are on their own journey, not just to survive and find a home, but to start to unravel the mystery that is their family, family's legacy and this organization that sort of, it becomes one of the core mysteries of the, of the series. And again, the, the movie barely got to touch on it. I think they had one little clue and one thing uh, that was a spyglass and VFD and all that. But like the books and the, the the Netflix show have really gotten to explore that in a way that is really cool. And I'm hoping they continue to build with that in the third season when that comes out, I guess, next year. So the first season for me was interesting. I mean, visually, it's a stunning show. The, the color. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And the intensity and just kind of the, I don't want to say comicness of it all, but it is very just over the top and very visually appealing. It has a bit of a slow start. It really kind of does not grab you right away. It's a really kind of wild conceit. You have Klaus, who is introduced as basically kind of being the brains and and has this like encyclopedic knowledge. You have Violet, who is a master of machinery, but usually only once she pulls her hair up into basically a ponytail with her ribbon. And then you have Sonny Baudelaire, who is the baby, who is like a beaver. She basically has she these has crazy teeth. Very sharp teeth. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but not just sharp teeth, but a lot of times it's it's like crazy, like... It's a cartoon, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, and then the book's... Not, so this is what's kind of interesting. And I, this, I, I will say, back to the topic of the first season, there are visual gags, and like you said, the visual style, that the only thing we had to draw on when we're reading these books is the original editions and i don't know if they still do this but i hope so they have these beautiful uh illustrations by uh i'm gonna find his name uh brett helquist and they're scattered throughout the book so it's not like a graphic novel where you're reading a comic book there it, it's a, it's a true like classic style illustrated children's book and so you know chapters will have like little i'm showing pat what this looks like uh this chapter four and then at the bottom you have like caricatures of some of the people in this, uh, in this case, it's the carnival. Um, and you got the lions and you got all this stuff. So like, we only had this as a visual reference. And then of course our imagination, right? But seeing how they interpret it, like you said, it is a rich, luscious, gorgeous, very, uh, Brian Fuller, uh, Barry Sonnenfeld, very, very, um, stylized is the wrong word, but I mean, there's a bit of that. Oh no. So I, I definitely stylized. would agree with, with it being stylized. It very much has, a, a a very specific style feel it's that very lush very colorful colorful or at times muted depending on what they're going for because the other thing that's cool about these books in this series is they don't they're not set in a certain time period they're very much uh what does glenn weldon like to say about um guillermo del toro a fable like fable you, you can be whatever you want because it's a fable and it's got a lot of that it's not as bad as gotham where you have flip oh, phones no. and corded phones well gotham <laughs> is awful so if you, if you need more information about what gotham is awful just you know go back to any of our shows where we talk about gotham it's oddly getting better oh, i don't want to hear that nah. um but yeah no it's they they did a beautiful job season one really set a great tone and every book has its own location it does move around the world so you get to really see varying styles from book to book to book depending on where it's set absolutely so Season two dropped on March 30th, and with it, 
it not only brought more episodes, because the way they've divided this is basically gone into a 484 type of breakdown, which works well because when you have an odd number of books, you're not going to have an, you know, 454. 454. Four. Yeah. Eight because it's eight, two episodes each, which surprised me, right? Remember, I was looking at the list and I thought, oh, wow, we're going to end on this book. And then I'm like, there's two more. Exactly. Which is awesome. Yeah. So you had, you had four books that were covered over season one. And then the next five books encompass season two. The one thing you can definitely tell from season two is that Netflix really was confident after season one. They obviously, they went ahead and greenlit seasons two and three. So we'll be able to see all 13 books come to life on Netflix. But it definitely grew and blossomed into a bigger type of show with season two, including new cast members, Nathan Fillion. Yay! Joey Joey Buchanan. Who? I know him from his days Firefly. on the soaps. Uh, oh, that's right. He I always was, forget about that. He yeah. was Joseph Buchanan on One Life to Live. Oh, wow. That was when Joey Buchanan wanted to prove he was an adult, so he started having a Mrs. Robinson-like affair with Dorian. Wow. Yes, he went Did after... he have any of that swagger that he has now? Oh, no. okay, oh God, so. no. I feel like it's something he grew into, and Firefly really helped with that, but um, yeah, his, what was I... Castle? What was his show? He, yeah, no, he, he did was... for like a million years. And... Yeah, he oh. did Castle. That, that, was, that was a thing. I, I didn't like it, but... It, I never it, watched it. But no, Nathan Fillion's fabulous, and he plays a great character, and we're, we're, we're actually leaving out someone who... Uh, she was going to be next. If, oh, no, 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 not oh, she. Ooh. Nope. We, we we overlooked one of the more important parts of the, the show, in season one and season two. Ah, okay. Um, so the books are very, like, they're narrated by Lemony Snicket, and um, one of my favorite actors of pretty much all time from sort of that comedic, dry character actor not character actor um just his persona is so like uh entrancing i would say um, patrick his, warburton. his chest hair is entrancing that that too <laughs> but patrick warburton who i always think back to emperor's new groove uh cronk um but of course putty from seinfeld um uh, what else uh, excuse me spoon exactly the, the live action tick um warburton has had a charmed career and truly, when I, when they, oh, that was one of the announcements they made back then. I was like, Patrick Warburton as Lemony Snake. Like, it didn't, it didn't fit the Jude Law, which was from the movie, like that British, very erudite sort of reporter, but very mysterious. But then that first episode in season one, we watched him and he came out and he did the whole narration sort of on top of the existing events, even though he's actually further in like the, the timeline, if you will to like he's investigating the story of the Baudelaire's he's not interacting with it as much as recounting it that whole narrative thing perfectly translated from the books and Warburton sells it so incredibly well but so yes and it works he does an amazing job with it he is fantastic and we need to get Patty Warbucks on the show that would be a dream for me. I mean, it would be a, it would be an amazing interview. I would, and from what the impression I've got, at least through Twitter and some other things, he's kind of a cool guy in his own right. He's kind of weird in a lot of cool ways. His Twitter handle is Patty Warbucks. I well, mean, come on, but like, I mean, that's he, just awesome. He seems to get attached to projects that are interesting to me, at least, and I feel like there's some you know reason for that. But yeah, his voice could charm the pants off anybody. Like, Absolutely, he's fabulous. But uh, Nathan Fillion, 
was an amazing casting of his brother, yes. who I completely forgot is even in the books. Like I have forgotten so much of this book series, which is kind of a great way to re- to experience it because you hate to be that person where you're like, well, that's different. Well, that's different. I don't like that. And I remember just enough to kind of go, oh, okay, I kind of remember this, and yet still be surprised. There have been moments where I'm like, oh my god, like like Jacques Snicket summing up, and I'm like, oh, who is this guy? Holy crap, that's okay. Um, but yeah, fabulous. And then um, the and next amazing. They also added Sarah Rue to the cast, who comes in at season two in the first set of episodes as the librarian, and is kind of meek and mild and, and played in the background, but ends up becoming a huge part of season two and becomes a huge ally and friend for the Baudelaire's. She is one of those actresses that you see her and a lot of her roles that she's probably best known for are kind of weird or quirky. What else has she done? I have no idea. I know I've seen her. I just don't know. She pops up, like you said, in random places. But seriously, I think she is one of the best librarians. So there's multiple characters in this book series and the the show that have libraries because this little spoiler uh the book advocates reading and in fact the secret order is sort of related to being erudite and you know well read and all that stuff but yeah so she's one of the librarian sort of characters in this in the series and she is spot on for it uh so she did less than perfect which was uh her sitcom she was in uh impastor which was a tv land original that's probably what i yeah yeah. i I watched that on i think hulu within the past couple of years yeah and a bunch of different things. Eastwick, The the Ring, Can't Hardly Wait. It, there's just a lot of things that she's done. But she's always that weird, quirky character. And it absolutely works brilliantly for her. She looks amazing. And when you get to a certain episode, she's in disguise. And quite honestly, it took... At first, I was like, is that her? But then I was like, no, that can't be. And then after being on screen a couple more times, it's like, Oh, no, that's definitely her before they actually do the full reveal that it is her in disguise. And she definitely adds a huge element into the second season. It really did feel a lot more thought out. Tied together the season in a good way. Oh, for sure. And I don't remember in the, again, I don't remember the books. I don't remember if that was her arc exactly in the book, though I did go back and verify if she is in that, uh, the one where she's in disguise. But um, but yeah, no, she's a great character, and and yeah, that actress nailed that whole thing. The only thing that was kind of amusing at times is they did seem to kind of bustier her a little bit, a lot. Uh, like her boobs were always like served up, which I'm fine with. But it was kind of funny each time you would see her, she would be in this very kind of, and it's not like overly sexualized, and it, I mean it looked fine, but it was just a little like, okay, all right, Tits McGee, what's going on here? You know, well, just- I, there's a lot of points throughout the show that are extremely adult sexual humor centric buried way subtext or presented visually uh yes 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 because there was one point where count olaf was basically masturbating his hand or fisting him fisting his his other hand forgot about that i was thought you were talking about the dancing oh well a lot of stuff with dancing and the metaphors of that and all that yeah uh has anybody seen the boss's noodle like you know there's a lot of things that and i'm sure that there there are probably some kind of hints to that type of humor 
in the books a little bit because I mean they're they're YA, so you're not going to have that type of it's like overt you know jokes. But would to call back to one of your comments from earlier, Handler being able to being involved in writing this show is able to tweak it, make it a more modern telling of these stories, yeah. add in these adult humor jokes because a lot of the kids that have read these books already are now of that age where they're entering into adult humor territory. You can get away with the visual gags. You can do all these things that give it a different feel than books that are marketed to, you know, your 12 to 18 year olds. No, I think you're right. I think there's definitely an element of, yeah, let's add additional humor for the adults, but really bury it deep. So it's not, like gonna take you out of the story or kids gonna ask weird questions yeah no i think you're right i think and handler's other writing it's not as young adult oriented when basically when he writes as daniel handler he's a very satirical very sometimes a little uh, not sexual but again he has a sort of perverse sense of humor at times so i i can see that you know creeping in through his influence but you know the the stuff you're talking about is like i said very very buried and from the books themselves like and I was an adult. I mean, I was in my 20s, let's say. I didn't remember it being like too much, if any, of that. So I feel like that is more of like they'll say the later edition. Oh, yeah. And I mean, that's basically like, I mean, you talk about Disney and Pixar movies that are when they're family movies, you know, from a you're going to have a portion of it that's going to be adult humor because yeah. adults are going to be watching this as well. Yep. Whether it's the kids that have grown up from these books into adults right or you have an adult of you know 35 40 years old that has a kid that they want to introduce this to that they're going to be sitting there watching these episodes with it so you get that little bit of extra humor and in the books i will say some of the the stuff i was talking about subverting the meaning of words really is uh for the adults and the smart kids because handler wasn't just trying to you know he wanted to craft a book series that was Sort of a kind of, I want to say gateway drug, but just it brought young readers into this world and educated them and kind of grew them up over time. And um, you, again, like I sort of alluded to this earlier, uh, The Vile Village is a, so actually let's start with the Airsats Elevator, uh, is sort of a satire of, of what's popular in culture, what's in and what's out. And that's a whole thing on that. The Vile Village is sort of a satire on government and the over-regulation of this and that and just society having too many rules. So a little more libertarian, I guess, philosophy. The ho the hospital, the hostile hospital, is very much a satire of the ridiculousness that is a hospital, including the records and the... Having to fill up forms in triplicate, triplicate quadruplicate, yep, and yep. all that. And there was actually, in the hostile hospital, there was actually some really delightful visual gags um, from The Shining that they added in. And that's certainly not something you'd you know read in the book, but it was really cool to see that brought out. The Carnivorous Carnival is less of a satire, more of like a freak show uh, pastiche. I love that in the background you saw one of the signs for a pinhead. Uh, so you're familiar with like American Horror Story or, or other freak show uh, or carnival movies. Which is a callback to Neil Patrick Harris's career because he was in... American Horror oh, Story right. Freak Show. I forgot all about that. Yeah, you're right. He was the magician, right? Uh, and then, of course, the Austere Academy. Which he is a magician. Right. That's right. why That's why magic gets worked into just about every vehicle that he's in. That's interesting. Because even... I at, remember... Yeah, okay, you're as right. As Barney, he constantly was doing magic tricks mm -hmm. in American Horror Story and in 
And in this, now he's done magic. I totally didn't think about that, but you're absolutely right. The Austere Academy, just to round it out, is, of course, a satire on higher education or not even higher education, like schools in general and some of the ridiculousness that kids experience when they're taking tests that they don't see any relevance to. But again, all couched in this world where the good guys read and and are smart or at least try to volunteer and help. And the bad guys are the ones that are really selfish sort of like don't care about the facts if you will you know like they're uh they're quite okay with uh the reality bending and telling whatever they need to to get through life and d- dressing up in disguises and all that stuff so uh all of that is sort of sometimes a little more higher brow material that adults pick right up on and again the kids who are paying attention are maybe a little ahead of things also uh, can enjoy as well so absolutely so um i think season two definitely a step up from season one, not to say season one was bad at all, but it definitely gets that story going. Like you said, it dishes out more information about the mysteries of what's going on. It gives you, I don't want to say answers because we don't have 100% answers, but it gives you a lot more of where the story is heading and ties up some points and opens up new questions. And all of those episodes are up for streaming from season one and from season two. So season three was officially announced when they announced the pickup for season two. So we have four books left. And they're thicker books. Each like it's kind of like you know, Harry Potter as well. They got bigger as they went. So it wouldn't shock me if we actually got more than eight episodes in the last season. And then that's it. I don't think really there there are prequel books and tie-ins and all that stuff, but I don't think their plan is probably right now, unless it does really well, to continue on or add new material. But those la- the end is like, I mean, it's like almost the size of two of these books. Um, and I'll tell you, I'm not going to like spoil the ending of anything, but I will tell you this, this series does get darker as it goes through. And so uh, as you go through season two and you get towards the end, it is kind of bleak in a lot of ways. The last four books are very bleak, and the the last books particularly kind of amazing to see if they can pull it off tonally and not just depress everybody. I mean, they tell you up front and repeatedly, this is not a story where people end up well, better off. You know, you know, bad things happen to good people constantly, and this happens more in the, in the last four. So, absolutely. I mean, that's that really is the theme that goes through it, where they. We're Lemony Snicket at the beginning of everything. And I love that he refers to them as episodes because it's, it's that like pseudo meta kind of feel to it. Um, but yeah, it's very much, you know, if, if you don't want to see bad things happen, then turn away. Neil Patrick Harris sings it like 14 times in the, uh, the opening song every Look episode. <laughs> so, yep. uh, but no, when, uh, Neil Patrick Harris confirmed the, the renewal, he did say that season three was the end. So that will be the end of which logistically you got these kids that are the actors like you can't do much more than those three seasons or they're going to turn into adults. Well, and and actually, they do make a a joke about that going from season one to season two, because at the end of season one, they're sitting on this bench and season two picks up and they're still sitting on that bench. And they either they didn't replace the baby. They kept the same baby. But you a baby's going to have more of a growth spurt and more changes than a a young adult would and they the baby went from being a baby to a toddler yeah oh yeah so they do make a joke about um we've been sitting here it feels like we've been sitting here so long that 
Sonny lo- doesn't look like a baby anymore. Like they, they they joke about it and reference it, and it, I think I think that was a great way for them to really kind of do that. Yeah, it's tongue in cheek. I mean, a lot of the shows were tongue in cheek, but that was a cute little meta comment, meta humor like thing. Because yeah, you're like Sonny looks a lot taller now, but not like <laughs> I mean, she's still a baby or a toddler, I guess. Well, right? yeah, she went from being from looking more like an infant to looking more like a toddler, where instead of having to be picked up and carried everywhere she's more mobile she's walking a lot more you know they have her walking through a lot of these episodes um so yeah it'll be interesting to see when they do production for season three and uh and how that affects change with uh sunny and and with these these actors in these roles but that looks like it'll be a very interesting season i'm excited i actually when we started this journey, I was kind of like, oh, okay, whatever. I'll, I'll watch these. It, it is what it is. And um, by the end of season one, I was like, okay, this is pretty interesting. Season two, from start to finish, I was very much enjoying every episode and really kind of looking forward to seeing. You know, and I'm, I'm, I get in, I'm getting invested in some of these characters. And it's horrible because <laughs> like any like yeah. any Moffat or Whedon or Martin story, you can't really get attached to anybody because... yeah. Lots of people die in these in these and episodes. I forgot because even at the beginning of season two, there's like a little reprieve from that, and so you you really kind of just go, oh, okay, cool, and then something happens, and you're like, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, this is this is this is this is how the story goes. So, so it'll be interesting to see how they they wrap it up with season three, how these books translate into their episode counterparts, whether or not we have eight or more episodes for the final season. But no matter how it ends, I am sure that we'll be back to discuss season three. It's been a pleasure discussing seasons one and two with you, Brian. Thank you. And uh, before we sign off for the night, if you're enjoying what we are doing, and it's a very different episode than we normally do, then please check us out online. Go to playmonshow.com. You can find all of our social media links there. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram, Tumblr. Uh, pretty much anywhere that there's social media, we are there. If you are interested in becoming a Patreon subscriber and helping support this show and the rest of the Nerdy Show Network, then visit patreon.com forward slash nerdy show. You can give one time, you can give monthly, whatever you can do. It helps keep us and all the other Nerdy Show shows going. And uh, if you are so inclined, please do us a solid and head over to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a star rating or write us a review. We love when you do that. That also helps other people find our show. And um, we can't do this without you, so keep on doing what you're doing, because you rock. And we'll be back in just a couple of weeks with our next full cast episode. We are quickly approaching episode number 200. If you have a question, a comment, a a memory of Flame On that you want to share with us, Send it on over to us. You can send it to pat at flameonshow.com. You can send it to brian at flameonshow.com. Leave us a message or uh, a comment on Facebook, whatever it is, and you may be a part of our giant 200th episode. So with that, thank you, dear listeners, and we are out of here. Peace. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.